0: Well, open your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 1. As we come back to look this morning at the second half of this chapter, we started last week, of course, looking in the first 17 verses at this great genealogy. This morning we come to Matthew 1, verses 18 to 25. Allow me to read that section as we begin our time this morning, Matthew 1, 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Well, as I said, we began this study of this uh, great gospel last week from Matthew, who wrote this to his own people, the Jews. He was a Jew himself, of course, a a disciple of Christ and he wrote the gospel, we're told by both historical uh, account and also by the evidence from the gospel itself. He wrote it in a very Jewish way to a very Jewish audience. And his basic aim is to answer the question of who is Jesus? And his basic answer is going to be Jesus is the Messiah, the fulfillment of what had been a long-term promise God had made to King David, a messiah, an anointed one, the one who would ultimately fulfill a promise to fill the throne of David, to seat someone on the throne of David forever. If you've never asked that question of yourself, if you've never stopped to really ask who is Jesus, then I suppose perhaps uh, reading this gospel or hearing this sermon or any of these sermons wouldn't be that compelling to you. Even now at Christmas time, hearing the story of the birth of Christ might just be like any other tradition, like the decorations and the carols and all those things that we sing. But if you stop and ask yourself this basic question, who is Jesus? You couldn't find a more profound passage in all of Scripture to answer the question than the one we have in front of us today. The passage that Mark, excuse me, that Matthew gives to us, makes this astounding claim about the identity of Jesus, that he was a man born of a virgin with the name Emmanuel, God with us. Now before we get too deep into the details of all that, I think it's important that we kind of understand what Matthew is presenting to us in in a sort of a schematic way. He's going to talk about the identity of Jesus as we go all the way through the Gospel of Matthew a number of different ways. But one of the most important parts of his message, one of the most important ways he presents his message is through the fulfillment of prophecy, the fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. And he crafts his message around what people sometimes call fulfillment formulas or quotation formulas. This is very particular to Matthew Over and over again, as he walks us through the events of Jesus' life, he tells us that they happened the way they happened in order to fulfill or so that it might fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. That's the key phrase, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. And Matthew says this again and again and again, 11 times in one various form or another throughout his gospel. And on top of that, a number of other specific and clear references to the Old Testament, all sort of driving home the point that Jesus' life had been foretold and forecast hundreds of years before it ever happened to turn out exactly the way that it turned out by God's design. Out of those fulfillment formulas, specifically the 11... um, very uh, similar statements that he makes throughout his gospel, five of them come to us just in the first two chapters of Matthew's gospel, five fulfillment formulas that, that uh, really frame up these, these uh, verses around the birth narrative of Christ. And, and what we find is that as Jesus is, um, or as Matthew is telling us the story of Jesus, this isn't just some sort of random recounting of history, He's actually framing what he says to us around five verses that'll come in these first two chapters, five fulfillment verses that are, are, that are uh, compelling in terms of identifying who Jesus is as the Messiah. He is, in Matthew's understanding, in Matthew's message, he is nothing less than the promised Savior, the promised Messiah, the one who had long, long ago been set apart in God's divine plan for God's divine purposes but brought about now in the birth of Christ. Matthew had access, no doubt, to all kinds of information. He had the same uh, access, no doubt, to witnesses of these events. He himself obviously wasn't there when Jesus was born, but he would have had access to People like Mary, Jesus' mother, or Jude and James, Jesus' brothers, who were prominent leaders in the Jerusalem church, he would have had access to all these eyewitnesses, the same ones, for example, that Luke had access to. He could have shared so many details, but he gives us these stories in this way in order to frame our minds around this singular fact that Jesus... His entire life are the culmination of God's long-established plan. The first one, these first of these fulfillment formulas, if you will, that Matthew presents to us right here in this passage is from Isaiah 7.14. And it's a prophecy about the virgin birth of the Messiah. Isaiah said that God would send a child into the house of David and a virgin would give birth to a son and he would be called Emmanuel. Well, we'll get to that in terms of details in just a minute. But as Matthew gives us this and introduces us to this majestic idea of the birth of Christ, he embeds in this enough information for us to stop and ponder this glorious truth one of the most important truths in all of the story of Christ. In fact, one of the most important truths in all the story of the world. It is momentous, momentous when you stop to ponder what God is telling us through the birth of this little baby. Matthew, I think, highlights for us then four critical components in just these verses, 18 to 25, four critical components For understanding how Christ was conceived, how Christ entered this world. Four critical components for understanding the virgin birth of Christ. The first one is unmistakable. You see it in verses 18 and 19. That is the miracle of His birth. The miracle of His birth. Matthew has, as I've already said, given us this genealogy. And he launches in verse 18 directly then into the story of Christ. The birth of Jesus Christ, he says, took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. As one writer says, if... um, if it weren't for that final phrase, from the Holy Spirit, Matthew would really be doing nothing more than just giving us the report of a small town scandal of a young girl pregnant outside of wedlock. Because one of the things he makes obvious as you go throughout this passage, one of the things he emphasizes again and again is that these things all took place before Mary came together with Joseph before they consummated their marriage, before they lived together, before they were intimately involved. This pregnancy wasn't the result of her and Joseph. In fact, it wasn't the result of any kind of natural process or natural generation. This was a miraculous event. He tells us from the beginning that this took place when Mary was betrothed to a man named Joseph. And in those days, this was very serious business. Betrothal was so much more serious than our modern concepts of engagement. In Jewish society, it was essentially a a commercial contract that you were entering into. Betrothals in ancient Israel involved obligations, obligations, Especially as it relates to the bride price or the the dowry, as we sometimes know, it was uh it wasn't just a promise to marry a a young lady by a young man. it was a contract between the young man and the lady's father that would deliver an expected price. rabbinical sources tell us that a bride would typically enter into one of these contracts when she was about 12 and a half years old. And within the next year or two would typically finalize the deal by entering in formally to marriage so that most girls were married by the time they were 14. There's no reason to, to uh, question whether Mary would have fit that mold. She was probably a very young, a very delicate, very, in some ways, um, fragile young lady But she had entered into this contract, this binding contract by law. The only way from which you could extract yourself from such a contract would be through a legal proceeding, a literally a divorce, a decree of divorce. It was, these kinds of contracts were as binding as any marriage would be. And the only way that you could get out of it would be to go before some sort of judicial body, some sort of ceremony. In fact, if a man was betrothed to a woman and he died, they would refer to her still as a widow. In fact, she would be entitled to inheritances from him and from his family because of the betrothal contract. So this is a situation where Mary and Joseph find themselves. He has gone to Mary's father He's negotiated a dowry, a bride price. They've entered into a legal, formal arrangement in exchange for the privilege of taking Mary as his bride. He delivers over a sum of money or a, uh, uh, I'm sure maybe a number of animals. I remember uh, when I talk about this in Kenya, uh, they still practice this in Kenya. In fact, they're shocked that we give away our daughters for nothing. And then I actually tell them how much we spend on weddings and they fall on the ground. They can't believe we're getting fleeced over here. They, um, they pay hefty sums for the privilege of marrying someone's daughter. And Matthew, no doubt, had made such a contract with Mary's father. But then he gets the news that Mary is with child. We don't know the details, but Joseph found out somehow, some way that she was pregnant. We don't know if rumor began to spread or what I think probably happened is that this young 12, 13-year-old girl took it upon herself to go and tell Joseph herself. Luke, if you have your Bibles, you can turn over there. Luke chapter 1, verse 26 lets us know that Mary first... Herself heard the news of this from an angel. Luke one twenty six. It says, "In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a silly city in Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. This was the sixth month of of uh, Elizabeth's pregnancy." So he comes to this virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph in the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But as she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He'll be great. And he'll be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The next thing we hear about in Luke's account, of course, is Mary going to visit her cousin Elizabeth and share the news about her pregnancy. We're not told anything that happened in between, but my suspicion is that long before she ever traveled to see her cousin, long before she ever shared that news with anyone else, she tried to tell Joseph. And not surprisingly... Joseph was suspicious. And he came to the conclusion that anyone would come to naturally in their mind if a woman is pregnant and she's not been intimate with you, she's been intimate with someone else. And so he's come to the conclusion that she has been unfaithful to him. And so Matthew continues the story in verse 19, and her husband Joseph being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame... Resolved to divorce her quietly. We can only imagine how hurt Joseph must have felt, how angry, no doubt, that he was. But obviously, he's also a man full of compassion and apparently a genuine love for Mary. Because Matthew says that he, being a just man, because of a sense of of righteousness and justice and As I said, no doubt a sense of love for Mary because of all these things, it moved him so that he did not want to put Mary to public humiliation, public shame. This, by the way, is why I think Mary is the one who shared the news with Joseph because Matthew is suggesting that at least at this point, no one knew about this. It wasn't public at this point. Rumors hadn't spread; they hadn't leaked back, back to Joseph necessarily. No one publicly was aware of this, but Joseph made the decision he was going to try to keep that keep it that way. Now, rabbinical sources would tell us that if you were to break a betrothal contract, particularly if you thought that a woman had been unfaithful during her betrothal, betrothal period, rabbinical sources are very clear that you are to take the young lady before the Sanhedrin down in Jerusalem. You're to take her there for a process of litigation where you could state your case, present your evidence, have the finding of facts, and have a judgment rendered against you, presumably so that you could exit the contract by way of formal divorce and recoup all of the bride price, all of the dowry that you had so dearly paid for, for the privilege of marrying this young lady. But Joseph, we're told, decides not to do that. He decides to divorce her quietly, which you could do also, the scripture, excuse me, the rabbinical sources tell us, you could do this with just the witness of two or or one or two people. You could dissolve a betrothal contract. We might Call it a no fault divorce. You could just simply, in a quiet ceremony, go get rid of your obligations to marry and probably forfeit all of your dowry. This is the point, apparently, where Joseph had reached in his mind because he was missing one important piece of information. The child in Mary's womb wasn't there by natural generation. He was there by the generating power of the Holy Spirit. What Matthew, in fact, is telling us again and again is that this pregnancy took place before Joseph and Mary ever came together, before Mary was with anyone. In fact, down in verse 25, you'll notice that he says again at the end of the story that even after they were formally married to one another, they still remained abstinent until the birth of Christ. All of this took place before the marriage was consummated. All of this took place supernaturally. Now, this has been a core conviction of Christianity from the beginning of its its, uh, foundations, you might say. This conviction that Jesus was born to a virgin, it's central to the story of Christ. It is central to our faith. It is emphasized not only in the Gospels, but in the works of the apostles, the other apostles, and even in the Old Testament. It's emphasized, we might say, prophetically. It is central that Jesus was born not through natural generation, from a man and a woman, but through the supernatural generation of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, in other words, placed the necessary genetic material within the eggs of uh, Mary in order to form an embryo in her womb, so that the child to be born from her would have all the full components of humanity and the full components of deity. And because of this, as the angel tells Mary in Luke, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and the power of the Most High overshadows you, therefore, the child to be born with you will be called holy, the Son of God. Now, even though this has been central to Christianity, there's always been debate about why. Why the virgin Birth. There have been a number of answers, but I think the answers are given to us right in Scripture. And it isn't necessarily that this was some way to to somehow shield Jesus from sinful nature that could have been passed down to Him by human generation, passed down to Him through the For example, the genetic code of the male line. It has been suggested that Mary herself was was not the means by which Jesus received a sinful nature. This is how medieval theologians came up with the idea of the immaculate conception. That idea that Mary herself didn't have sin. She was born without any sin, and so therefore she couldn't genetically pass on sin to Jesus. That's how he came forth, born in human flesh and yet without sin. But of course we know Mary certainly had a sinful nature. She had sins of her own just like everyone else. She needed to be forgiven just like everyone else. She was under the wrath of God just like everyone else born in this world. In fact, in Luke's gospel, she refers to God as her Savior. She was one who needed to be saved like anyone else. So the virgin birth really has nothing to do with whether or not Jesus could inherit a sinful nature from his mother, Mary. Uh, She didn't need an immaculate conception in order to spare Jesus from that. We know, of course, that Jesus had no sin of his own, but... This wasn't the result of an immaculate conception. It was a result, no doubt, of the Holy Spirit supernaturally protecting Jesus from any corruption that might have come to Him through human genetic code, we might say. Some people have said, well, it's not actually, it's not actually has nothing to do with the, um, the substance of the genes and the cells and all that other stuff but it really has to do with the sort of the legal standing. That, that for Jesus to have been born of natural generation would have put him under the guilt of Adam. See, you, you and I, we stand guilty because not just our own sin, because of the sin of Adam. We, we, we stand under the wrath of God. We stand condemned. Because Adam served as a kind of representative for you and I. And so in the Garden of Eden, when Adam failed, when he fell into sin, he plunged all of us into condemnation, even before we were born, before we ever did anything good or bad. Romans 5.18 says, By one man's trespass, all humanity fell into condemnation. So you're born condemned because your representative Adam was condemned and that condemnation spread to all human flesh. And so you're born under the wrath of God. But again, by the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, Jesus, it seems, was preserved from even that guilt. Or another way to say this, that even without the genetic code of Joseph, the genetic code of Mary would have been sufficient to corrupt, uh, sufficient, I might say, to pass on the guilt of, of Adam's corruption or the guilt of Adam's condemnation. She herself, in her own humanity, was condemned, and she herself, in anything that she could contribute to this new child, would have been condemned, but the Holy Spirit apparently preserved the fetus of Christ, even from that legal penalty. So the reasons for the virgin birth really have nothing to do, I don't think, with this this protecting him in some way from the corruption of human flesh. That was done supernaturally by the Holy Spirit. The reasons that are always attached to the virgin birth that you find in Scripture are always stated unmistakably, so that he could be recognized as the Son of God. Those are the words of the angel to Mary. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born, the, the child to, be born to you will be called Holy the Son of God. Of God, the Son of God, they're sort of defining what he means by holy. Even in the Old Testament, when you hear the prophecy of the virgin birth from the lips of Isaiah, it's immediately coupled with this name, this special name that's going to be given to this child. He will be called what? Emmanuel, meaning God with us. So the focus, every time the scripture speaks about the virgin birth, the focus is always not so much on his lack of sin, although we know that Jesus had no sin, the focus is always on his deity. It's always on the the fact that this all took place so that there would be an indelible and unmistakable sign that this child was like no other person who's ever been born on the earth. This child is the son of God that 's the first critical component that we need to understand in, in perceiving christ 's conception. secondly, not just the miracle of his birth, but Matthew also introduces us to the mission of his name in verses twenty and twenty one he, he is revealed to Joseph not only by, by a explanation of his generation but also by his name. It says as he 's considering as he was considering this divorce and thinking contemplating all that. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit and she'll bear a son and you'll call his name Jesus for he'll he'll save his people from their sins. This, by the way, is the first of four times that Joseph is going to hear from God via a dream. You'll see it here down in chapter 2, verse 13. Again in verse 19 of chapter 2. Again in verse 22. Four times the Lord speaks to Joseph in a dream. And each time, except for the last one, it is explicit that it is an angel speaking to him in the dream. I think even in the last one, while it's not explicit, it's probably implied. Each time... It includes supernatural information, stuff that he couldn't know apart from angelic revelation. In other words, these weren't just sort of Freudian impulses that were coming from from his own secret embedded desires or emotions or anything like that. This was supernatural communication involving, in most cases, things he could have never known on his own. When the angel comes to him, He immediately addresses him as Joseph, son of David, which I'm sure must have struck Joseph. He probably didn't receive that title in normal discourse, but immediately alerts him to the significant role that he's going to play in God's plan. He was the one who was going to legally adopt Jesus and provide for him the legal standing as the heir to David's throne. And the angel proceeds to tell Joseph not to be afraid to take Mary as his wife because that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. I don't know if that's all he told Joseph, if there wasn't any more explanation, but Joseph seemed to comprehend at this point that Mary hadn't been unfaithful to him, that something miraculous was taking place with her. And then in verse 21, the angel adds, she'll bear a son and you'll call his name Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. So in case Joseph didn't get the point, the angel sort of accentuates here. This, this is not only a miraculous birth, but this is one who is coming to fulfill all the promises of the Old Testament as it relates to the forgiveness of sins most particularly the new covenant promises the promises of places like jeremiah or ezekiel 36 which made these clear and explicit promises that god will bring about a new covenant like not like the old covenant when israel was uh, disobedient and and unwilling or unable to to obey god's commands He was going to bring about a new covenant, and through the new covenant, he says, he was going to place his law within their hearts, he was going to place his spirit within them, and he was going to forgive their sins forever. So this language would have rung forth in Joseph's mind, no doubt, and it was supposed to be marked or is supposed to be signified with a particular name that he was to give Jesus, the name Yeshua, or as we say in English, Jesus, or as they might say in Hebrew, Joshua. This name, which historians tell us wasn't a particularly unique name. It was, as one person calculated, looking at ancient records, it was perhaps the sixth most popular name in the first century among Jews. But it wasn't the fact that he would be the only one named this. It was simply that his name was going to be tied to his mission. He was going to be called Yeshua, which translated means Yahweh saves. That's his name. The Lord saves. And he's given this because his mission we're told, was to save his people from their sins. The angel wants Joseph to understand that this is why he's coming. This is why he was being given. This is why he was coming the way he was coming. And all this was to be reflected in this special name. He was going to come. He was going to provide salvation. He was going to provide deliverance. He was going to save people from their sins because they needed to be saved. Lots of people, of course, understand that they need deliverance. They feel a a need for liberation. They sense a desire for release or salvation. But when they think of that, they begin to think about liberation from their circumstances. They They begin to think they need to be freed from maybe the misery, or maybe they need to be freed from their poverty, or maybe they need to be freed from their oppression, or maybe they need to be freed from from some big government, or maybe some oppressive boss, or maybe they need to be freed from their marriage, or from sickness, or even sometimes from their parents. They think about liberation. They think about freedom, but very rarely do they think about Liberation and deliverance in the terms that God offers it. In the terms that Jesus came to offer. He came as a Savior, but He came as a Savior from your sins. To save you, you might save from yourself. The Jews, even in Jesus' day, would speak sometimes about a deliverer, a Savior. But they wanted someone to save them from an occupying foreign power. They wanted someone to save them from the Roman government who was oppressing them. They wanted someone to deliver them from high taxes and tariffs and from what they perceived to be injustice and inequality or sometimes even brutality. They wanted salvation from all of that. But when Jesus came, it was announced that He was the Savior, but the Savior from your sins. The Savior from the penalty of your sins the savior from the guilt and the judgment of your sins the savior from god's wrath over your sins this is why he came now unfortunately this is not a salvation that israel wanted to hear about they wanted to speak about freedom, but they don't want to speak about this kind of freedom. They want to speak about salvation, but not this kind of salvation. And so they don't want to hear that their main problem was their sins. And they didn't want to hear that they needed a Savior from their sins. Even though the Scripture in the Old Testament spoke about it again and again and again, this is not what they wanted. And this will become one of the major themes in Matthew's gospel, Jesus attempting to bring a message of true salvation and the unwillingness of Israel to hear it. As John says, he came to his own and his own received him not. But John also says to those who did receive him, to those who did receive him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. See, this is the message of Christ. This is the message of Jesus. This is the message of Christmas. That Jesus was born to save you from your sins. And while you may not think about your sins as your main problem, He came to tell you that that is your main problem. And while you may not want to receive that kind of salvation, if you do receive Him, He gives you the right to become the child of God. God, rather than having you under his wrath and under his condemnation, God, rather than ostracizing you, God, rather than turning his back on you, God, rather than condemning you, God adopts you. He takes you as his own. This was who Christ was. He came on a mission for all those who would hear Him and all those who would receive Him to bring salvation for sins. Well, that brings us quickly to a third critical component for understanding how Christ was conceived. We saw the miracle of His birth and the mission of His name. Well, Matthew also tells us about the message of the prophets In verse 22, the angel stops speaking, and now we hear the words of Matthew as he quotes the Old Testament, as he'll do so many times throughout this gospel. And Matthew says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they'll call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And Matthew is telling us that this verse foretold the virgin birth of Christ. This verse explains why all this was happening the way it was happening with Mary. And we don't have time to really full, uh, to, to trace all of this out. Hopefully in the coming weeks we will. But you have to understand when Matthew speaks about fulfilling of the Old Testament it probably has a broader sense than you might typically think of. Because what Matthew does, no doubt as he's reading through Isaiah chapter 7, his attention is drawn there because what he sees is a whole cluster of other passages in the context that speak about God's future work through the Messiah. It's a passage that goes on to speak, for example, about a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense in Isaiah chapter 8, and many in Israel stumbling over him. It goes on to talk about a light shining forth in Galilee of the Gentiles. And particularly throughout this section in Matthew 7, 8, and 9 is a focus on God's work through children. Children beginning with Isaiah's own children who were introduced in chapter 7, verse 3, to one of them, Shir Jashub. In chapter 8, verse 3, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, his second child. And eventually in Isaiah chapter 9, he talks about a child who would be born and a son who would be given. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Matthew, no doubt reading the Scripture, sees all of this as pointing to Christ. And particularly when he comes across the name Emmanuel. The first time he mentions it is in Isaiah chapter 7, but he'll come back and mention it again in chapter 8 a couple of times. But the first time is in this prophecy to the king at Isaiah's time, a man named Ahaz. This was about 735 B.C. And Ahaz was um, in a dilemma. He, uh, He was facing a threat from his enemies to the north, his northern border from Israel and also from Syria. And he was contemplating how to get out of this mess and so he had entered into negotiations with another nation called Assyria. Ahaz was fearful, not only for his own nation, but for his own life and for his own heritage. He feared that his country would be overtaken and his family would be captured and his his children would be slaughtered and the whole royal line of David would come to an end. In fact, we're told there in Isaiah chapter 7 that one of the principal fears that he had was that they would come and set up a man named Tabeel in place of Ahaz as king. So this would be the elimination of the entire Davidic line. And so Ahaz has this plan. He devises this scheme to sign into a, an alliance with Assyria, which would include servitude to Assyria and to its king, even to its gods. Spiritual compromise. But God sends the prophet Isaiah to King Ahaz to plead with him not to do this and to give him assurances that God was able to protect his nation. In fact, God says, Ask of me any sign that you want that I can do this and I'll prove it to you. Any sign. He tells Ahaz in Isaiah 7, 11, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. I mean, you can ask anything, anything in the world or even above the world or under the world, anything in your imagination, just ask it. Don't ask for some little whisper. Don't ask for some vague signal. You're supposed to ask for something dramatic, something as deep as Sheol, as high as the heavens. Ahaz defies the Lord, of course. He refuses to ask for a sign. And so, God says through the prophet Isaiah, Therefore, the Lord said to him, I myself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. She'll call his name Emmanuel. Now, for years and years, people have debated this particular passage. I mean, they've they've asked, "Who is this virgin? What is this sign? What does all this mean?" Some people have tried to suggest, for example, that the word in Hebrew for virgin, Alma, doesn't really specifically refer to a virgin. It just refers to any young woman, so they interpret this to say that a young woman will conceive and give birth, and then some of them even say that the young woman is Isaiah's wife who gives birth to a son, and they call him Emmanuel. Well, the problem, there are a number of problems with that kind of reasoning. First of all, we're never told that Isaiah and his wife have a child that they name Emmanuel. In fact, we're given the names of Isaiah's children and neither of them is called Emmanuel. Secondly, would it really be any kind of sign to say that a young lady who wasn't a virgin conceives and gives birth to a son? I mean, that happens, what, every few minutes if not every few hours, right? That wouldn't necessarily be very compelling if you were looking for a sign, especially in light of the fact that God had commanded Ahaz to ask for a sign as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven, he was impressing on him the need to have a sign that was otherworldly, that was, we might say, supernatural. And, a, and, a, and a, a young girl who was already married wouldn't necessarily be much of a sign. It wouldn't really, I think, give much confidence to Ahaz. Thirdly, the term Alma really has no better translation, I think, than virgin. It's used nine times in the Old Testament. In every instance, it seems to point clearly to an unmarried young lady with the exception of twice when it's used to speak about uh, instrumentalists who very well could have been virgins. It's just referring to the young ladies who were playing instruments, but... There's no reason to believe that they were necessarily not virgins. It's a word that is completely fitting. In fact, there was no other word in Hebrew for virgin. If, if uh, Isaiah wanted to communicate that this was a prophecy about a virgin, this was the only word he had. And as if to confirm that, when the Jews themselves translated their scripture into Greek in 250 B.C., when they produced the Septuagint, they used a Greek word parthenos, which very clearly refers to a virgin. In other words, we don't need to ponder from the vantage point of 2,500 years after the fact, 2,700 years after the fact. We don't need to ponder what the word might have meant. We have someone from within the context of the original culture and language who very clearly understood what Alma meant. It was a word for a virgin. And when they translated it to Greek, they translated it that way. Fourth, Isaiah never really gives us a specific time frame for when this birth would take place. This has been the chief objection of people. They say, well it says to Ahaz that he's supposed to ask for a sign. So it has to be, it has to be a sign that takes place in his lifetime. So therefore, it has to be someone who gave birth in the time of Isaiah. Well, I don't think it has to be any of that, honestly. In fact, when Isaiah rebukes Ahaz for refusing to ask for a sign, he makes a critical shift in the language he moves from a singular uh, pronoun or pronominal uh, uh, suffix. He shifts from a singular to a plural. He says it's too little for is it too little for you, singular Ahaz, to weary men that you will now weary God also? But then he shifts And he says, therefore, the Lord himself will give to you, or really, we should say give to y'all, the Lord himself will give to y'all a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you'll call his name Emmanuel. So it seems obvious just in the context that he's looking beyond Ahaz, and he's looking beyond just this particular instance. He's directing this message really, if not to the entire house of David, probably to the entire nation of Israel. And as you move through the chapter, the Lord begins to unfold what this plan will be, eventually specifying that this child who's going to come is not going to come immediately. In fact, in chapter 8... God tells Isaiah to bind up the testimony, to seal up the teaching, to set it away for safekeeping, because obviously this wouldn't take place immediately, that the children that God is giving both to Isaiah and his own children, and no doubt even this Emmanuel child, they are portends, he says, for the future. And when you get to Isaiah chapter 9, it begins to look into the future, and beyond the, the the destruction and the anguish that would take place in Ahaz's day, and it says in chapter 9, verse 1, there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. So, Isaiah is already suggesting that everything he's saying isn't just for the former times, it's also for the latter times. And it's during those latter times that Isaiah returns and says, For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Now with a name like that, I can just imagine that any good Jew like Matthew would have easily drawn a connection between a child who's named Mighty God and a child who's named God with us, a child who's named Emmanuel. So Matthew understands Isaiah exactly as Isaiah wanted to be understood. He understands that this prophecy, which was originally given in the days of Ahaz, was very clearly a prophecy about a miraculous birth. It was very clearly a prophecy about a virgin who would conceive. And it was unmistakably a prophecy about the coming messianic King. So it was no surprise that Jesus would be born in this way, no surprise that He would come. Even though His critics and His enemies would use it in the days to come, His virgin birth, they would use it to try to smear His name, saying that it was really the result of Mary and her promiscuity. Matthew says, no, this is exactly what your God told you would happen. And all that sort of naturally brings us to the fourth critical component that we can quickly touch on here that helps us understand how Christ was conceived and that is the meekness of his parents in verses 24 and 25. When Joseph, it says, woke from his sleep and from this dream, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. So the impression is that Joseph obeyed immediately. He obeyed immediately. And again, Matthew emphasizes that he remained abstinent until the birth of Christ. No question whatsoever, leaving no doubt in our minds, this was not a child of Joseph or any other man. This was none other than the Son of God. We don't know how long it remained a secret that Mary was already pregnant when they became married. We do know that Joseph took her immediately as his wife and no doubt provided her with some sort of protection from the scrutiny of the world as her body began to reveal the signs of pregnancy, God would eventually orchestrate events so that they would travel down to Bethlehem before she gave birth and then on to Egypt after that. So probably it would be hard for locals to exactly calculate the days of her pregnancy and the timing of her conception eventually of course the truth did slip out and Jesus' enemies would use it against him but in the meantime God provided Jesus with these parents who by all accounts willingly offered themselves as vessels for God's plan even though it meant difficult circumstances even though it meant they would face a lot of scorn even though it took them on a path that was less than easy, less easy than they would have chosen for themselves. Every time we encounter them, we see that their obedience is immediate. And God uses them because of that. Joseph, he seems to understand the magnitude of the moment. He seemed to grasp the message of this child the meaning of his name God with us that's what so many people failed to grasp even though God gave the amazing sign of a virgin birth you go through all the Christmas traditions you sing all the songs you have all the celebrations do you ever stop to think about this God came to dwell with us. He came, He took on human flesh, all the magnitude, all the infinite glory of heaven, clothed Himself in the humble garments of human flesh and was born to a 14-year-old girl. He was born of the woman so that He could become truly one of us. He did that, he became human so that he could face all the penalty that humans deserve. He did that so that he could face the wrath of God against our sins. He did it so that he could be the Savior for all those that would receive him. That's really the message of, of this gospel. It's really the message of the entire story. The message in his name. He came to save you from your sins whether you want to admit it or not you're a sinner whether you want to admit it or not you need salvation you need forgiveness you need cleansing you need your guilt to be wiped away you need the wrath of God to be removed you need to be reconciled to God God gave a Savior and He gave you a sign so that you would believe in Him The challenge to you today is respond to that. Respond to that. Father, we're grateful for our time, thankful for the word this morning, prayerful that you would use it in the hearts and minds of everyone who has heard to stir us with a greater sense of worship, to stir us with a greater sense of gratitude, to stir us once again with a love for this Savior. With a, with a sense of assurance by way of his birth, as we sing of it this Christmas season, we celebrate your mighty power who has made so clear that the Son of God has come to dwell with us. We're thankful, Lord, so thankful for our Savior and the salvation that he brings. In Christ's name. Amen.